Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. So I have been searching for a clean electrolyte company that I love for a really long time, and I just hadn't found anything that I liked, that I enjoyed the taste of, that I felt good about the ingredients, until I found Element. And I actually got a sample from somebody, and I was instantly hooked. They have really good flavors. They're actually tasty. Like, I enjoy drinking them, whereas other brands that I've tried in the past I really haven't enjoyed. And you can just put them straight into your water, um, and they're so good. So they have salt, magnesium, and potassium potassium in them. And a lot of people don't realize how important electrolytes are for true hydration. A lot of us are chugging water because we're being told that we need more water, but we don't, we're not drinking the electrolytes that we need to actually hydrate our bodies. And so Element is a great choice. They also make seasonal chocolate flavors that are really good as like a hot chocolate. And you can put them in your coffee if you want, or just with hot water and like milk or just plain. I like to drink them plain. I love Element. I have at least one pack a day. Electrolytes are so important, especially for pregnancy and breastfeeding. So if you're lacking your electrolytes, give Element a try. You can use my link, Drink Element. It's drinklmnt.com slash Taylor K. And you will get a free gift with your purchase, which is a sample pack. So you can try all of the flavors. Again, that's drinklmnt.com slash Taylor K. Hi guys, I am so excited for you to listen to this interview that I have for you today. We are joined by Dr. Kathleen Kendall-Tackett. She is a health psychologist and international board certified lactation consultant and the owner and editor-in-chief of Preclaris Press, a small press specializing in women's health. Dr. Kendall-Tackett is editor-in-chief of the journal Psychological Trauma and was founding editor-in-chief of Clinical Lactation. She is fellow of the American Psychological Association in Health and Trauma Psychology and author or editor of 40 books. Dr. Kendall Tackett specializes in women's health research, including breastfeeding, depression, trauma, and health psychology. Her forthcoming book is called Breastfeeding Doesn't Need to Suck, published by the American Psychological Association. Hi, Dr. Kathy. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to have you. Well, it's great to be here. Um, I would love to just dive in and start talking a little bit about bed sharing. We were just talking, um, before, before we started recording, but we were just talking about how, you know, safe bed sharing, uh, making sure that parents know 
what safe bed sharing looks like and that it's an option for them is so important to me. It's one of my passions. Um, most of the people listening to this, because I've shared my story on here, know that I am a bed sharing mom. I have two kids and I started bed sharing with my first child. Who's now four, um, when she was about six months old, because I was terrified of bed sharing. I didn't know that it was an option, but she just would not sleep in her crib. I tried some forms of sleep training before I really understood what that was because I felt like I had to. Um, and then we finally just, my husband one night was like, just let her stay in bed with us because that's the only way any of us were sleeping. And I, so we did and we slept and I felt so guilty about it. I didn't tell anybody. Um, and then I started looking into the work of you and professor James McKenna and Helen Ball and all of these wonderful people and these resources that I actually learned that bed sharing can be done and it is done by so many parents and families. Right. And so I became really passionate about sharing that. So first, I just want to thank you for all of the work that you do, um, because your work and work of people like you have just been really influential in my life and my career. And I know so many listening are also just very thankful for you as well. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks. I'm glad we could help. Yeah. So, so Kathy, can you tell us, is bed sharing safe? Can it be done safely? Um, yeah, there's kind of, there's kind of a little bit kind of two questions there. So the first mm -hmm. one, can it be done safely? Absolutely. You know, um, is it safe? I would say under certain circumstances, you know, it's right. like, I, it's not something you would recommend for everyone. Cause there's definitely some contraindications to it. And I think that that's something that's kind of important to say, you know, of but course. you know, for, you know, a, um, non-medicated, non-smoking, breastfeeding mother, yes, you know, really quite safe. As long as, you know, you make sure that you get rid of in, any environmental risk factors like fluffy comforters, anything that, you know, could possibly be, potentially be a suffocation risk. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what needs to happen so that bed sharing is safe? Um, well, uh, there's a few things. Uh, first of all, you know, there has to be breastfeeding. Now, mm -hmm. The question kind of about how much does it have to be exclusive? Um, you know, there's a little, there's a little debate, honestly, in the field, mm -hmm. you know, like Jim McKenna would say, well, you know, that's really better. And actually in some ways our research kind of supports that, but Helen Ball kind of feels, I asked her about it one time and I said, well, you know, how much, you know, how much breastfeeding is kind of necessary? And she said, well, if a mother has breastfed, you know, cause she's the one who actually showed that a breastfeeding and a formula feeding mother sleep with their babies very differently. Right. You know, that you don't get the responsiveness with the bottle feeding and you don't get that, you know, what they call a C position mm -hmm. where the moms actually basically make a nest with their body, you know, so they've got their arms up like this and they kind of pull their legs up and the baby is kind of tucked in this little nest, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't tend to get that pattern if somebody has not at least breastfed, you know, but, um, so that would be, you know, so that would be one kind of requirement that there's breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. um, the other non-smoking, because we know that that actually does raise the SIDS risk quite a bit. And, you know, it's like in cultures where everybody bed shares and everybody smokes, you know, like down in New Zealand, there's a, you know, there's a uh, indigenous community called the Maori that do that. And their SIDS rates were actually quite high. And what the way they kind of suggested that they work around that is to weave these little baskets. I'm sorry, I just got this little thing that came up here. And they weave these traditional baskets to put the babies in, in the bed and it mm -hmm. cut their rates in half. So it's kind of like, yeah, smoking, you know, is, is a kind of a contraindication, but you can have your baby near, you know, right. and depending on how much you smoke, it's still better probably for you to breastfeed than not. 
Um, mm-hmm. But you want to make sure you do things like, you know, uh, cover yourself when you smoke, don't smoke in the house, you know, wash off your skin and stuff before you, before you nurse the baby and don't have your clothes smell like cigarette smoke. Um, you know, there's a bunch of things like that. Okay. So non-smoking. And I think a really important thing is not having anything in your system that could impair your responsiveness. And that can be anything that can be alcohol. That can be, uh, that can be cannabis. That could be other recreational drugs. That could be prescription medications, anything that's going to impair uh, your responsiveness to that baby is going to increase the risk of SIDS. And that's really quite dangerous. And the other thing is you want to make sure that there's nothing that could become a suffocation risk. So you want to make sure that, you know, your mattress is not fluffy, you know? So for example, if you have like a pillow top mattress, which a lot of people mm-hmm. do or a memory form, those are really nice. They're very comfortable. Um, you know, it, but if you put your hand in it and it sinks, you know, that may not be safe, but what you can do is kind of a little hack is you can just take a yoga mat, slide it under the sheet. And it makes that a, a nice firm surface for the baby, you know, until the baby gets a little bit older, but you know, you don't want something that they can get their face down in there and kind of get stuck. And it's the same thing with, you don't want a bunch of, you know, fluffy covers or pillows, you know, you don't want any sort of covers around the baby. So you put the baby in like a sleeper so they don't necessarily have a blanket on them. And you right. also right. want to make sure that you keep all that away from the baby. Now, the other thing is too, is like, if you've got other people in the bed um, and particularly other children, you want to make sure that that baby is not sleeping next to another child because that can be dangerous. Um, so I, with those kind of, you know, things in place, it is actually safe. And it's like even the SIDS articles that you, when you look at it, when you get right down to it and you say, OK, you know, if you've got this, this and this and this, the SIDS researchers even conclude no elevated risk. Mm-hmm. Now, now, one guy, Tappan, who's from Scotland, he actually said, you know, you have to wait 11 weeks. Now, not everybody agrees with that, but that was actually one thing that kind of he found. Uh, but then even the AAP statement, when they did that, they used a meta-analysis by a researcher called Veneman, and they concluded that, you know, after 11 weeks, because they used some of the Tappan data, um, there was no increased risk of bed sharing. Yeah. And again, like I said, I think there's some debate about whether before 11 weeks is safe or not. Um, Obviously, a lot of parents do sleep with their babies before that. Um, But again, like I said, I think, you know, some other things that we would probably be a little bit concerned about is like if the baby is really small, um, you know, because sometimes they're at a little higher risk uh, if the baby was really premature, you know, but Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, sleeping next to your baby is the only way to keep them like calm and sleeping. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I just, as my personal example, cause kind of going back to the, the breastfeeding versus, you know, formula feeding thing, right. not versus, but I know that the guidelines say it's safest bed sharing is safely done with a breastfeeding relationship. And what I think about those, I've had a lot of parents, you know, come to me and say, well, can I only formula feed? And it's the only way my baby can sleep is bed sharing. Can I do this? And of course, I'm never going to tell a parent what to do. I'm never going to say you absolutely can't do this or you need to do this. I just provide the information. And I think all parents should know that it is safest with a breastfeeding relationship, but ultimately they have to make that decision. But so I, I breastfeed, but my son, um, he had tongue and lip ties, he got them released, but he had a really difficult recovery and we had to go to lots of rehab, get body work, but it took some time. And for the first like four-ish months of his life, he would only sleep on my chest. And Mm. even then he didn't like for me to be like, he just was a very restless sleeper. Like a lot of times I had to be up bouncing and rocking him and otherwise he wouldn't settle. So, Mm. you know, even bed sharing with him flat next to me was not an option crib sleeping was never an option. And so I just think about those families that what I was breastfeeding, but what if they're not breastfeeding, they're formula feeding, but they're in a similar circumstance, isn't it? I think safety is really 
it's relative, right? Because if, if the option is have your baby who is formula feeding sleep only on your chest, because that's where they'll sleep or be literally up all night, rocking them, putting them in the crib. They wake, you get them, you're sleep deprived, you're falling asleep, you know, standing, rocking them. It seems like it would be that maybe allow like letting that family or that family making the decision to bed share might be safer. So I just kind of see, I guess it's not just black or white. It's really what is going on for that specific family and that specific baby. What do you yeah, think about I, that? I would actually, I would actually honestly, just based on both Jim and Helen's research, I would raise a little bit of a caution there. And the only thing I would suggest, particularly if you've got a baby sleeping on your chest, is that you wear some kind of a sling mm-hmm. to keep that baby safe. Because what could happen is the baby could slide under like that. And so we don't want that. Yeah. And so like, that's the way they kind of do the kangaroo care. You know, when they do it, like in hospitals and stuff, they have this mm-hmm. thing. It's almost looks like a tube top, you yeah. know, and it's like these tube tops. And then the baby is down there. Cause that would be the, that I would definitely recommend that if they, if mm-hmm. they, you know, you're going to sleep, especially with a baby in that position. Cause you know, that comes up with the type of breastfeeding technique, you know, called biological nurturing or laid back breastfeeding, you right. know, cause sometimes that's a very comfortable position. You want to go, you know, lay down and go to sleep, but you do have to be kind of aware of the fact that that baby could slide, right. you know? So you want to make sure that, and and that would probably be a situation where you'd also want to be propped up a little bit, not flat on your back. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And so propped up a little bit. And then also, again, like I said, I would definitely be wearing a sling in that situation. Yeah. 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 Good to know. Good to know. Um, Yeah. I agree with that. And I just think it's so interesting that the, the people that are so against bed sharing and say, you know, you should never bed share, put your baby in the crib. Like it's just a reality that some babies won't sleep in the crib for whatever reason, for many reasons. I happen to support and work with a lot of families that have babies with underlying medical needs. They have Hmm. breathing issues. They have tongue ties. And so I I guess I see more of that side of it. I've had those babies. Um, So I just have compassion for those parents and knowing we have to be talking about other options because it's just not a reality for so many families that they can just put their baby in a crib. Um, And so then you were talking a lot about you know, the, the, what the research is saying about the risks of bed sharing and that there are even some research, some research researchers say that you need to wait until 11 months, but then even after 11 11 weeks, weeks, 11 weeks. weeks, Um, but then even after that, it's really no more risky. Safe bed sharing is no more risky than safe crib sleeping. Um, and I've seen that research as well. Um, but what I think is also is a lot of the times missing from the conversation is that, coupled with the benefits of bed sharing, right? We don't really, it's almost like people think about bed sharing as just being risky and they don't think about how the benefits kind of play a role in decision-making for whether you're going to bed share with your baby. Can you talk a little bit about some of the benefits of bed sharing? Well, I mean, one of the big ones, and it's funny because the SIDS researchers are now even talking about this, is that it prolongs breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. That's a huge one. And breastfeeding it by itself cuts SIDS risk by 50%. Right. So, you know, now all of a sudden, because it used to be kind of like, you know, the anti-bed sharing folks were like all about the infant safety and, you know, they'd say to the breastfeeding people, you don't care about infant safety and you just care about breastfeeding. And it's like now they kind of have to change the tune a little bit, you know, and have Mm -hmm. to kind of say, okay, well, wait a second. This is a this is promoting a behavior that we know cuts SIDS risk in half, you know, and so our cuts back. And it's like, that's actually really significant. And so it's like encouraging families to do that, I think is, is a good thing, you know? And so there, you know, so now they said, kind of find themselves in a situation and, you know, you can see it kind of, uh, the AAP statement itself has evolved over the mm-hmm. years, 
you know, which I think is actually very interesting. So at least actually they're paying attention. Yeah. They're never going to come out and support bed sharing ever. That's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think they've moved closer to it, you know, and I, the other thing I want to kind of mention, especially with some of the families you're talking about that maybe, you know, it's not necessarily safe to bed share. There's, there's other options besides the crib, you know, and that's, I think, kind of an important thing to mention. And just even having, you know, a baby in a little basket next to you. Yeah. So you still they be there and you, you know they're very accessible you can lay your arm ac- across them they're close they can hear you they can smell you you know that actually can be you know in these situations where maybe it's not really entirely safe mm-hmm. for you to be bed sharing but you can be there to be comforting and responsive to your baby you know and so that actually is another option you know so it's like mm-hmm. we don't want to kind of portray it as you know okay they've got to be you know either in the bed or either in the crib it's like we kind of have some things in between right you know and what we found in our study too, which I thought was really interesting is after six months, you know, so six months is the period you're supposed to have your baby in your room, not necessarily in your bed, according to the AAP, you know, as that cuts this. But, you know, after six months, we found a lot of the families in our, in our um, study were actually, the babies were going and starting off their night in another room, you know, crib down the hall, mm-hmm. but then they were ending the night in the bed. So mm-hmm. it was kind of like they would sleep a little bit by themselves and then the families would come go get them, you know, and put yeah. them in bed. And so it's like, that was a really, that, that I was surprised at actually how common of a pattern that was. Yeah. And what's interesting too, because when we asked them straight out, you know, where does your baby sleep? Where, you know, which is a pretty straightforward question. Where does your baby spend most of the night? And we had only 30% said that they were bed sharing. Mm. But when I asked the question, where does your baby end the night? It was a full 60% and it was across the entire first year. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, that was, that's the question to ask, you know, cause I yeah. think what happens is particularly, I think I've noticed this, like when you look at national data and stuff, white families tend to be very, very good at sort of parsing what they, what they say, mm-hmm. you know, so that it looks like they're not bed sharing. Right. You know, everybody else is 50, 60% and the white families are 15%. It's like, mm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's because of this. Oh, no, no. They, they're, they're in the crib. Look, look, look. See. Yeah. Well, because they are, they start off in the crib, but yeah, it's so interesting because people don't want to talk about it because there's this, it's this shame culture, right? It's, it's shameful to sleep with your baby. That's what we've been kind of made to believe you're, you're dangerous. You're neglectful. Um, if you sleep with your baby and obviously like, I know now that that's not true, but that's what I thought when I was a new mom, I didn't know what I didn't know people actually bed shared. I didn't know it was okay to bed share safely. Um, and so we don't want to talk about it. So this shame breeds silence and secrecy, which then I think it's just a vicious cycle because then nobody's talking about it. So p- new parents don't know that they're like, they think they're the only ones bed sharing. So then they right. don't talk about it. So people aren't sharing their experiences. And what I found when I first started actually telling people, like when people would ask me, how's your baby sleeping? And I became more confident learning mm. about bed sharing. And so I started sharing that with them. And what I found was that uh, a lot of parents would say, oh, we bed share too. Or, oh, we, you know, our, like you just said, our baby and sleeps in the crib in the first part of the night, but then they always come into the, our bed in the morning. And before I said that, they weren't going to divulge that information to right. me. Oh, no. But it gave them, almost gave them permission to share when I shared yeah. with them. Well, and, you know, I found this years ago, I did a study on what was called extended breastfeeding. Now to be in the study, you actually remember this, the data were collected in the eighties, mm-hmm. you know, we published the papers in the nineties. Um, but to be in the study, you had to have breastfed at least one baby for six months. Okay. So mm-hmm. that's a pretty, you know, nobody was talking about it. Absolutely nobody. Yeah. You know? And so it's kind of like, we were able to collect some data on this and, um, uh, 
I remember being really struck by it because I hadn't really trafficked with this particular group very much, you know, and it's like, I started finding out that like a lot of my friends, I mean, people had no idea. I mean, it was yeah. such a secret thing, you know, cause it's like, I would be telling, you know, I'd run into people and they say, Oh, what are you working on now? And I said, well, you know, I'm working on this study on extended breastfeeding or long-term breastfeeding or something like that. And they'd say, well, you know, what do you mean by long-term, you know, mm -hmm. it was just like, and so this is why I kind of had an idea that, you know, when we were talking about bed sharing behavior, that people were going to be very quiet about it, you know, and people will come right out and tell you, you know, what you're doing is dangerous. You know, I had somebody tell me early on, you know, you'll never have a marital life, you know, kind of thing, you're ruining yeah. marriage. And, you know, it, it, the strangest things, you know, that, mm -hmm. that people say, because I think they don't understand. Now, the problem is, too, practitioners are not allowed to talk about it. Right. And so, you know, one of the things that we kind of found in our study is that people were doing some genuinely dangerous things. Right. Because nobody could talk to them about it. Yeah. You know, and it's like the thing that we found that this is what made me do the study in the first place is some of, one of my friends was actually telling me that her and her husband take turns out on the couch, maybe. Mm -hmm. So they're not bed sharing. And I mean, I, it was all I could do to not gasp because that is really scary. That yeah. actually raises the rate of accidental suffocation by 67 times. Wow. That is frightening, you yeah. know? And so here they were trying to avoid one behavior and engaging in a far more dangerous one, mm -hmm. you know, and it tended to be the more educated and more affluent families, mothers that were doing this. So that was actually, a, you know, we actually published that paper and the AAP actually then changed their statement and told people not to go out and be on the couch or recliner, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, that was actually a good change, we thought. Yeah. Because I mean, it's like, good Lord. I mean, but see, this is what happens, you know, when you can't talk about it. And I've had, you know, practitioners all over the US and Canada too, but Canada's got a little better policy. But tell me, I am not allowed to discuss this. I am not allowed to even tell them about some resources, you know, like Helen Ball's website or Jim McKenna's website. I am not allowed to do that. It's horrific, you know, and I had a similar experience before I started bed sharing with my first. I um, I would often fall asleep rocking her in her rocking chair. I would fall asleep mm -hmm. with her because I couldn't lay her down. I couldn't transfer her. Every time I transferred her to the crib, she would wake up. And so, and I was exhausted. So I was falling asleep rocking in the rocking chair with her. I was falling asleep. I remember falling asleep, standing up and rocking her multiple mm -hmm. times. I mean, so yes, we're, and that is, I think you hit the nail on the head. That is the biggest problem with not being open about bed sharing, not just providing information to parents about safe bed sharing, because we don't know what we don't know until we know it. Right. We don't know right. that we're unsafely bed sharing because we don't know how to safely bed share. We are not given that information. And I feel like, isn't life all about in a lot of ways, risk mitigation, like parents are going to bed share. It's inevitable because it is a biological normal behavior for breastfeeding, you know, breastfeeding mothers and babies. Um, the goal should be to mitigate risk by allowing them, offering them the information so that they can do it as safely as possible. Right. Right. And I mean, and that's, you know, I think that that's the thing that Jim McKenna's has done so much work on is showing, you know, the wonderful, you know, we talked about the benefits. One of the things that, you know, I mentioned, you know, was the prolonged breastfeeding, but the other thing is that this wonderful synchrony that happens between mother and baby. And mm -hmm. it's really, it's really saved a lot of, of babies because, you know, the mothers are actually very tuned in and all of a sudden realize kind of the babies aren't breathing right? You know, and kind of can reach over and touch it. I had a, an example that uh, I used to share a lot and it was um, 
somebody had actually told me the story when I was in Michigan at the Lola Chile conference. And so she actually sent me a written version of it because she had posted it on some blog. But she was talking about how, you know, in her family, on her husband's side, you know, sleep apnea kind of runs in the family. Mm -hmm. And so both her husband and older son had had surgery to correct it. And she kept telling the doctor that her baby also seemed to have it. And they were kind of like, no, 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 no. So finally they ordered a sleep study when it was about a year. And so she shows up at the sleep lab right, with this baby in tow. And they kind of said, okay, well, you know, come back and pick him up in the morning. And she's like, no, <laughs> he sleeps with me. Oh my goodness. And she's like, well, we've never had that before. And he said, she said, look, if you want to get in any idea of him sleeping, I said, I have to be here. Mm-hmm. And so finally she said, well, we don't have any things to, you know, to monitor you. So they put all this, you know, polysomnographic stuff on the baby. And she said the next morning, she said the technician came in and she said, oh my God, that was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. She said it was like a dance, a beautiful dance. Mm. And she said that, you know, like several times during the night, the baby's uh, oxygen levels would go down to really dangerous levels. And the mother in her sleep didn't even know this would reach over and do something. And then his breathing would be normal. And she said she saw that. She said, you know, like several times she was about to go in and kind of intervene. And then the mother would just kind of stir and then the baby's sleep Mm. or the breathing would go back to normal. And so what the technician ended up saying by watching this was, she goes, don't let that baby out of your bed until his surgery, his life depends on you, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, you know, talk about a change, you know, her just over that period of time that they were in the sleep lab, you know, just incredible. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. It's like, we never know, you know, it's like, I had an, um, an ICU nurse tell me one time, you know, I I meet all these people at conferences, but she said that, um, in the ICU, what they do is they actually blow carbon dioxide onto patients to keep them breathing. Mm -hmm. And if you think about, you know, where's a mom's face next to the baby's face, you know, she's breathing carbon dioxide on that baby, like all night long. Right. You know, and so that is going to keep them breathing. Also, too, you know, she's feeding more often, you know, which I think is good. The babies are not sleeping as long at a single stretch. And yet mm-hmm. the mothers are getting more sleep. Right. You know, the mothers in our study that got the most sleep were the ones who were exclusively breastfeeding and bed sharing. You know, mm-hmm. they were far above everybody else. Yeah. The mothers who were exclusively bed sharing and the baby was someplace else. They, they also got a fair amount of sleep. But, you know, if you have to get up that actually does kind of cut down in terms of how much sleep you get, you know? So like I get, um, yeah, that's another, you know, that's another huge advantage. You know, it's like you look at those numbers and you think, well, long stretch of sleep for the baby and fewer awakenings, you know, that sounds good. That's going to affect the mother. That's going to be better for her, but it isn't actually, it's just the opposite. She gets Mm -hmm. less sleep that way. I think it's because she doesn't have the hormones to make her go back to sleep. You know, and mm-hmm. so she, she's probably awake more, you know, right. during that time and has a harder time getting back. And so, um, but the other thing is in terms of the baby, it's better to sleep shorter stretches mm-hmm. because, you know, one of the, the prominent theories of SIDS, you know, is that babies get into such a deep state that they can't get out of it, you know? And so having that kind of like activity that basically happens, there's a lot of things that go on, you know, when a mom is asleep with their baby. You know, she's touching, she's breathing, you know, they might shift around when the baby gets up to nurse, he goes on his side, then he goes back on his back. You know, they're kind of in this little nest. So it kind of calms them down. You know, the problem is babies sleeping by themselves. They're a lot of times startling themselves awake, you know, and by having that presence there, they're not doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's just lots of things that are going on, you know, and it's like, we start kind of messing with that system thinking we understand it, but, you know, I think we've kind of just scratched the surface of all the things that are happening during that. 
Yeah. It's really incredible. And I've had, I've had people share with me similar stories of them, you know, mm-hmm. re- recognizing that their baby wasn't breathing and saving right. their baby's life or waking up to their baby, not breathing and right. being able to do something and intervene. And it's really incredible, um, to hear those stories. And, um, it's just, it's also fascinating to me. And I, I, I totally agree. Like I've, I tried to put my daughter in the crib and I would find, even when she was hot, like she slept pretty well the first couple of months and then it went downhill. But, um, when I, when you have to get out of bed, you have to stand up, you have to walk to the crib or walk to the other room, wherever it is. And you have to rock your baby and stay awake while you're feeding because you're not in bed with them. It's so hard, especially sometimes postpartum when your hormones are out of whack or you have, you have extra stress hormones or whatever it is. You're, you're, um, sometimes nutrition is, you know, you're not getting the best nutrition. It can be really, really difficult to then go lay in bed and put yourself to sleep after you've been up. So that bed sharing allows, and not all, I also, you know, have heard from lots of families that they get less sleep bed sharing. So I think that's absolutely a reality for some um, moms too, but for the most part, you don't have to get up. So you can wake, you can, you know, nurse, you can sleep while you're nursing. It's just so much easier for a lot of families. Um, I was going to say, I think the families that are getting less sleep, you're going to find that a lot of times they're not exclusively breastfeeding. And we found that too. Mm, That's interesting. They're not exclusively breastfeeding. um, They are actually getting less sleep. And that would be a group that would say probably benefit from having a baby in a separate space, but near you know, like a basket or, you know, having a co-sleeper or something, you know, the basket I've mentioned, because that's a lot of times a more affordable option, you Mm -hmm. know, if they're, but the baby's kind of near, but we did actually find the same thing. And the, the, those families, uh, those mothers reported that they had more anger and irritability Mm -hmm. um, and they had more anxiety, you know, so Mm -hmm. kind of across the board, there are some families that bed sharing for whom bed sharing is not like the ultimate, but you still need to right. be responsive to your baby's nighttime needs. So it's kind of like, then we got to kind of think about a different strategy of how to do that. And then having the baby nearby, I still think is, is a really viable option. Yeah. You know? and yeah. And so that's actually, you know, and sometimes you, even people who are not exclusively breastfeeding, they may be doing like reverse cycle where they do most of the nursing at night, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like I said, you know, I, I, I just wrote about this in my book and I kind of said, well, how many models is too many, you know, and that's, that's really the question we don't have an answer to. So I would actually kind of judge, this is what I recommended is that you just kind of judge, this is working for you, you know, or would it be better to try, you know, something where they're in a separate space, but near you, you know, and that might be better. So yeah, right. some, some families do, but the, if you're exclusively breastfeeding, you know, kind of across the board, and we're not the only ones who found this, um, they, they tend to get more sleep. Yeah. That's so interesting. That, that makes a lot of sense that, families who aren't exclusively breastfeeding would have a more difficult time and get less sleep bed sharing. Um, can you, I think you've mentioned it, but I would love to hear your thoughts about co-sleepers like, um, snuggle me's or, um, I can't even think of other ones, but those like pillowy co-sleepers that have raised edges, because that's kind of a controversial topic in the bed sharing world. And, um, you know, I've always kind of been on, and I know also that they're not approved for sleep. So I think that's something that is important to say. I think most people say you cannot use these to, you know, do unsupervised sleep, meaning the parent is asleep and the baby is asleep. Um, but I know that a lot of families feel more comfortable using them. They feel safer using them while bed sharing. Do we have any research about that or do you have any thoughts about that? Well, you know, I think it would, a lot of it depends on the brands and I'm not as familiar with all the different brands. Yeah. Um, My friend, Wendy Middlemas, who's actually looked at that quite a bit. She said, one of the concerns she has about the co-sleepers is that, that there's a possibility that they could come a little bit loose and the baby could get wedged. So she said, Mm -hmm. if, 
people are using them. She says they need to be absolutely snugged up against. Um, Helen Ball, who is actually, you know, from the UK, she's done a lot of research on like attached, you know, sidecars on hospital beds and stuff like that, which I think is brilliant. I wish we had them here. Um, But she had said, you know, sometimes, you know, what happens with families is that co-sleepers are something that gives you in some ways permission to bed share. She said they, they, you start off with one of those and then pretty soon you gravitate to just bed sharing. Right. Because, but she says it's kind of like a way to kind of like in some ways ease into it. Um, but again, like I said, it, it, there could be situations where it really is better for the baby to have a separate space yeah. you know, nearby, you know? Uh, so in terms of like some of the safety regulations of some of those brands, I, you know, honestly, I probably would need to look into it to see which one, you know, kind of has the better regulation. I would say probably steer clear of anything where there's a possibility the baby, if they get their face next to it, could suffocate. Right. So that kind of goes with, you know, the padded bumpers and that kind of stuff. I mean, it makes it look all cute, but I would say, you know, if you're using something like that, first of all, very snug against that bed, make sure it doesn't come loose at all. But also too, same rules apply, you know, yeah. nothing fluffy in there. You want a firm surface, you know, so same rules apply that you would use to, with the bed. Yeah. And I think that's the major concern is the kind of the raised puffy sides of those co-sleepers that could be a suffocation risk. And what I normally tell parents is, you know, they're not really, they're not approved for, for, um, independent sleeping or unsupervised sleeping, I should say. Um, and that is a safety concern, but really if, if you are able to bed share with your baby and it's safe to do so, you meet all of the requirements and you can meet all of the guidelines mother's body is what helps keep baby safe. Am I correct in saying that? So it, yeah, you definitely. don't really need that, that separation if it can be done safely to bed share next, you know, next right. to each other. Right. Um, right. and I think a lot of parents have been so fear mongered in a way. I mean, they're, they are, we're absolutely fear mongered about bed sharing, that they're so scared to bed share, even when it can be done safely and they can meet all of those requirements, right. um, that they just think that they need, it's kind of part of the baby industry too, right? Because they just think they need all of the equipment because their right. bodies aren't enough. They're not enough to provide for their baby. They need this extra layer to protect their baby from them basically. Um, so I think there's a lot of problematic messaging in that in general, but I do know that there are some families for whatever reason, they don't feel they that it's safe for them to sleep right next to their baby. And they want to use something like that, um, to keep their baby close. So I was just curious. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is, you know, going back to the research with, you know, the hospital beds at the sidecar, you know, Mm -hmm. is what Helen found is that those, those mothers were as responsive to their babies as the ones who were right next to your body. So, you know, again, like I said, if you've got anxiety about that, about bed sharing, you know, you're not going to probably sleep very well, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I think actually we always should work under the assumption that we, whatever place we are, should be a play, a safe place for babies to sleep because the chance of you falling asleep is actually pretty high. Right. And so again, it's, it, it, this is part of the thing that's been a real tragedy about not discussing this with families, but now actually the AAP guidelines have actually come out and said that. And so that actually, I think is, you know, that's probably as close as we're going to ever get, but I think that that was a good suggestion. Mm-hmm. You know, because they said before, you know, when they said not to, you know, in the 2011 statement, when they said not to, you know, be sitting up, you know, in a a recliner or something like that and feeding your baby because that was dangerous, which it is, it's super dangerous. Um, But they said, you know, you could bring your baby, you know, to bed for feeding and comforting, but then when it was time to sleep, you put your baby in a separate place, you know, and it's kind of like, what thing have they had not kind of accounted for? you know, was the fact that lots of, lots of mothers fall asleep nursing right. babies. And so then um, the 2016 statement actually did change that. And they said, you know, you know, 
if you, you know, there's a possibility you might fall asleep. So make sure that that surface is safe. Mm-hmm. And I thought, good. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good change. Yeah. That's good. I haven't seen that actually. I need to go look for that then. Yeah. That, that is was, good. That's-, yeah, that's a, that's a really kind of important change in the yeah. uh, guideline. And so uh, again, like I said, cause I think the first one was very naive. In fact, thinking mm-hmm. that, you know, families were never going to fall asleep. Right. You know, when you've got a nursing baby laying next to you. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting too, to me, because we live in this sleep training culture where even your pediatrician is telling you, Oh, your baby six months, here's a sleep training handout. That's what I got. I got a sleep training handout at six months. Um, and there's all, there's this huge focus on how do we, you know, moms aren't moms are sleep deprived. How do we get our babies to sleep so that moms aren't sleep deprived, but then there's this disconnect from this really great solution in many cases, which is safe bed sharing for many families that allows everybody to get more sleep for the most part. And that's just not talked about. So it just seems like, I don't know, there's a disconnect. There's a, almost a double standard. Like we can do whatever to get baby sleeping and mom sleeping, but not bed sharing. Um, so I don't know. I just think that's really, well, you know, I think part of that honestly kind of grew out of that bottle feeding culture, you know, and that went behind that, which is, you know, first of all, somehow science can solve everything. Right. You know, and it's kind of like, you know, we, this is what I've kind of discovered. If you look at things historically, anytime people start saying science is better than nature, um, you know, it tends to actually mm-hmm. not be true, you know? Yes. And so it's kind of like, you know, they were naively thinking that they could improve upon this system, you know, that's been part of, you know, in the human DNA, you know, and uh, all other mammals, you know, that there's this closeness, you know, I was funny, I was watching the movie Dumbo with my kids when they were little, and it's like all the circus animals are bed sharing with their babies. Mm, yeah. And, and I thought, you know, yeah, that's kind of brilliant to see, but we thought we could kind of approve on it. And it's this idea too, that, you know, we need to manage this. Right. And that's so much parenting these days. You know, if you don't sing these kinds of songs, your baby won't learn to speak. Mm-hmm. Rubbish. Your baby is actually wired to learn to speak. So unless you keep them in total isolation, they will learn to speak. Or if yeah. we don't do this, they won't do, you know, they won't do this. And it's like, so we have all these things that we think we have to manage stuff that mm-hmm. they will do naturally. And it's the same thing. Like, you know, there's all these quote sleep problems, you know, that I think are honestly in many ways manufactured. Yeah. I call it pathologizing baby sleep, normal baby behavior. And it's, it's almost like we've become addicted. I don't know if it's, we've become addicted or what to just creating more and more problems for us to solve and adding more stress. And in reality, like we don't have that many problems. Like we, well, we, I mean, with our baby's development, um, of course there are some issues, there are some abnormalities, but for the most part, most babies and most children are doing exactly what they're meant to do, exactly what they're designed to do. And they're going to get through it regardless of whether we intervene or not, as long as we are being a responsive, responsible, loving caregiver. Right. And it's like, and also too, you know, a lot of these things that we have that we consider sleep problems. I mean, how much of this are caused, you know, like when you start talking about older children, how much of this is caused by our scheduling? Yeah. You know, and like all these, you know, like early start times to school. And, you know, I actually was on a panel one time with this guy who was kind of like basically, you know, he was a Cornell professor uh, and he was kind of a sleep doctor to the stars. And he was talking about this young woman and I can't remember her name. And she was an ice skater and she was on the Olympic team. And she was just kind of like not doing great. She was kind of doing, you know, mediocre, you know, and just not having a great season. And so they, you know, they went to see, you know, this guy and he said, well, look, I want you to stop doing your four o'clock in the morning practices. 
mm-hmm. you know, and she was crying because she thought, okay, that just means I'm finished. Yeah. You know, that means I'm just finished because and everybody will know it, that I'm finished if I stop doing this practice, you know, and he was saying like, you know, I want you to do this. I want you to go, you know, get, get to bed earlier and, you know, stop doing all this. She ended up going on and getting a gold medal because she was actually getting enough sleep then. Mm-hmm. And so it increased her performance, you know, but again, like I said, how many kids, you know, especially adolescents, you know, are having quote sleep problems because they have to start school at seven o'clock in the morning. that's been his argument and so again like I said I think you know we can go back to infancy and talk about that we feel like we've got to micromanage sleep but how much of it is caused by you know our our weird schedule but also our expectations we have this expectations Mm -hmm. that by at a certain age baby should be sleeping through the night and baby shouldn't be nursing at night and that really depends entirely on the mother's storage capacity in her breast you know it's like how are you going to manage that because mothers right. have large storage capacity in their breast, their babies sleep through the night earlier. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, somebody that's waking up to feed, they're doing exactly what's right for their biology, but people are telling them they're doing it wrong. Right. And there's nothing that they can actually do to alter that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I totally agree. And I always, I think it's so interesting because I feel like in our culture, we've become more and more open and accepting of people's differences and how individual and unique we all are, except for when it comes to babies, we still want to just lump them into a box and say, all your baby should, your baby six months old, they should be sleeping through the night and they don't need to nurse at night. And I just, it, it, it baffles me and it frustrates me to no end. The things that I hear from parents that their pediatrician told them, um, who has very little understanding of breastfeeding or sleep. And it's just this really bad information and advice that's being given. Wow. This conversation is probably one of my favorite interviews and conversations that I've had on here so far. We're going to continue. We're actually going to talk more about sleep training. Um, But before we do that, I want to share with you another one of my favorite products. Did y'all know that much like we have a gut microbiome, we also have a skin microbiome, which means we have tons of beneficial bacteria on our skin that protect us from pathogens. And did you also know that when you use harsh soaps and chemicals on your body, it can it can kill those bacteria and it can also create other imbalances, pH imbalances, et cetera, within the skin microbiome. So when I learned this information a couple of years ago, I stumbled upon Alivia skincare and we have been using it exclusively ever since. So Alivia has body cleanser. So it's like a body wash. My entire family uses it. And not only actually do we use it on our skin as body wash, but we also use it for our hair. Like I don't have shampoo for my kids. I use Alivia for my kids. And I love Alivia because not only does it smell amazing, but it's 100% natural and organic. It's non-toxic. It's free of all artificial fragrances and dyes. It's environmentally friendly. And it's not a soap. It is a prebiotic body cleanser. So it actually helps support and nourish that skin microbiome. And it works so well, especially if you have sensitive skin. It can help with eczema, pariasis, body acne, things like that. We love the green tea honeysuckle scent. It smells heavenly. It's so amazing. I usually stock up and get like five bottles at a time so that I can get free shipping. And they last a really long time. Like five or six bottles will last me, my whole family, about a year or so. So you can go to alivia.com. That's A-L-E-A-V-I-A 
com and use the code TaylorK15 and that will save you 15% off of all of your Alivia orders. How does breastfeeding affect sleep and mother's mental health? Okay. Well, um, it's really interesting to me that for so long, you know, in the mental health community, breastfeeding was just pretty much discarded. Mm-hmm. You know, and it actually didn't matter what what the mother wanted, you know, and it's like a lot of times I would get calls, you know, and say, I've just been diagnosed with postpartum depression and I'm told to wean. And this is the only thing that's going well for me. Mm-hmm. But it's still unfortunately very much part of the advice, you know, is mm-hmm. that okay, if you're if you're struggling at all with any kind of mental health issue, you need to stop breastfeeding. And that is, you know, such poor advice, or we need to, you know, stop feeding at night, or we need, you know, to have, you know, somebody else do some feedings, or, you know, we, we give this advice. And what we've actually discovered, and it's like, there's about four studies now that have shown exactly the same pattern, is that where you get protection from breastfeeding from mental health problems is with exclusive breastfeeding, you know, and exclusive breastfeeding and bed sharing, they have the lowest rates of depression, lowest anxiety, you know, but there's something that is different about exclusive breastfeeding. You know, now mixed feeding, obviously there's benefits. There's lots of benefits from other babies, stuff like that, but there is something physiological that happens with exclusive, you know, and it's like, I was surprised by that. I was surprised by that finding, you know, very much, but that's actually yeah. kind of what our analysis showed. And then we started seeing studies showing exactly the same pattern, you know, and so that's where you get all of this. It seems to completely downregulate the whole stress system. And so then what you see is you actually see lower rates of depression, lower rates of anxiety. Um, and we even found it. we had a sample of 994 women who'd been sexually assaulted, you know, mm-hmm. and it lowered their trauma symptoms. It didn't completely eliminate them, but it lowered them, you know, and that actually is, I was astounded the first time I saw that. I mean, that's kind of from yeah. the physiology, that's what I would have predicted, but you, you never see it so neatly in data as, as we did that time. Um, you know, and I said, it wasn't until I saw the graphs and saw what it looked like. It was, it was pretty amazing. So yes, breastfeeding does protect mother's mental health, but oftentimes the advice that mothers are, who are even at risk, you know, for any kind of mental health issue, people will tell them, you know, oh, only partially breastfeed. You need to supplement. You need to have somebody else feed the baby. You need to stop breastfeeding at night. You know, it's like, I was on a panel one time with a psychologist and she was saying she does cognitive therapy with mothers to make sure that they don't go responding to their babies at night. Oh my goodness. Like, why do you feel like you need to do that? Why do you feel like it has to be you, you know, that responds? I mean, it was kind of like, I, I, I have to admit, I was kind of astounded. I, you know, mm-hmm. and this was somebody who considers herself supportive of breastfeeding, but you keep up with that advice and chances are very good that, you know, your milk supply is going to falter and breastfeeding right. is going to And that's the other thing that's kind of interesting is you find that premature breastfeeding cessation, like stopping before you want to, Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes increases the risk of depression by a pretty dramatic amount. Yeah. You know, again, like I said, when people kind of get in there and interfere and think they're quote helping, they're actually making the situation worse, you know, for a lot of mothers, but the, the group of mothers that tends to have the highest rates of depressions are those who started and stopped before say eight weeks, you know, wow. and that, that and we just saw that in a big, you know, batch of uh, data from CDC with like 19,000 mothers, but we've seen that across different studies. 
you know, and so it's just, it's a pattern that keeps kind of showing up and showing, you know, and so people say, oh, well, we shouldn't have mothers start, you know, and it's like, we're putting too much pressure on them and stuff. And it's like, well, how about this? Maybe we're not giving them good support and they're really right. struggling and they're suffering. Exactly. You know, maybe what we need to do is instead of, you know, like a lot of times, you know, I talk to moms who, you know, they're, they've been in pain for days or weeks and they're told to keep doing what you're doing. It's mm-hmm. like, that's just poor practice in my opinion. You know, it's like, right. you don't tell somebody who's in pain to keep doing what they're doing. It's like, it's nonsensical. Um, mm-hmm. So that's actually, again, like I said, I, I think part of that is a big problem, but there's a lot of interface. Now, the other place where in mental health and breastfeeding kind of coming together is if you have a pre-existing depression or PTSD or anxiety, you are less likely to initiate breastfeeding and you, you tend to wean earlier. Okay. So then you kind of, that, that's what some of the argument with people will make. They'll say, well, you know, how can you possibly say that breastfeeding helps with mental health? Because people who are depressed are more likely to gravitate to the bottle feeding groups. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, that, you know, with certain types of research, that definitely is a, a critique. However, if you do what's called a prospective study where you, you know, measure everybody's depression at the beginning, determine that the group, you know, the mothers in the bottle feeding group are not depressed and then you follow them and see who's more depressed at time two, then you can actually say feeding method actually did make a difference. So it really kind of depends on the research design you do, you know, but unfortunately you do see lower rates. And this is one of the reasons why I've spent so long talking to the lactation community about these things, because it's like, look, this is a threat to breastfeeding. You know, if you say you want to support breastfeeding, this is something that will threaten it. And this yeah. is one of the reasons why we need to, you know, be like, knowing about resources for mental health and being able to identify and refer. Right. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head. The biggest issue is that mothers aren't supported. Mothers aren't supported to meet their goal. They're not supported to really nurture and respond to their baby at all hours of the day. I think there's such this huge emphasis on like physical well-being and like getting enough sleep, which these things are important, right? Sleep. I mean, getting enough sleep is hugely important. Um, and you know, whether your body's being, you know, used by your baby, I hate that term used by your baby, but whether you're breastfeeding your baby all the time, there's this focus on the physical aspect of it, of wellness and well-being, but not as much on like the emotional and the, are you feeling fulfilled? Are you feeling like you're connected with your baby? And I really do believe that, like you said, you know, nature, nature knows best and nature has a specific design for mothers and babies for a specific reason. Um, sometimes that doesn't work out for whatever reason. And we're definitely not trying to shame anybody for any decisions they've made here. But I do think this is really important to talk about um, because I think we've gotten to this place where we just, people, people don't want to have these conversations because it might make somebody feel bad if they've made a different decision or um, you know, whatever. And I just, there's, it's so important to talk about these things and figure out what really is going on. Why, why are so many mothers struggling well, I mean, you know, in the U.S., I can think one reason why mothers struggle is that so many of them have to go back to work so early. Yeah. It's like in countries where you've got actual maternity leave, you know, it's like I wonder if the issues of all this fatigue and stuff. I mean, of course they're tired. Of course they're tired. Right. Go back to work for six weeks. Good lord. You know, know. that's seen. You know, and they said twenty five percent of mothers in the U.S. are going back to work at two weeks. It's insane. Then we wonder why. Then we wonder why they're tired. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. I would love 
to hear a little bit of your thoughts on sleep training, if possible, um, specifically talking about non-responsive sleep training. So leaving your baby alone to cry, um, for any length of time or limiting feeds, night feeds. Um, I, you know, now when you say limiting feeds, what do you mean? Like shorter Um, feeds? Like restricting feeds when they're hungry. So a lot of sleep training programs, you know, operate under the assumption that a baby of a specific age does not need night feeds. And so they will not like, they will not feed a baby at a specific time, um, or whatever that looks like kind of just depends on the program that the parent is using. Yeah. Well, I think first of all, not feeding a hungry baby is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to get a failure with a very baby if you do that. You know, yeah. and and chances are very good that your breastfeeding is going to stop too, because right. you know, your baby, but babies need to be fed, and especially if you've got a, a mother. And I go back to this thing with storage capacity. This is the, some. This is the variable. A lot of times, people are not taking into account, which is, you know, there's a certain amount of milk making tissue that every woman has in her breast. Mm-hmm. You know, and some people have a small amount. Some people have a large amount. It's not really related to size, you know, right. so you can't just look at somebody and know this, but it changes the pattern of how the baby is fed. So over a 24 hour period, babies whose mothers have a small storage capacity are going to get every bit as much milk as a baby with a, you know, whose mother has a large storage capacity. However, the pattern is going to look very different. And so if you have a small storage capacity, you are going to be feeding more frequently. And that includes through the night. Mm -hmm. So if you just are, somebody arbitrarily says you shouldn't be feeding, you are actually depriving that baby of food that they need. And that is actually horrific. It's horrific Mm -hmm. advice. I think that people who give that advice don't know what they're talking about. I mean, really, I'm going to be quite strong there. I think that that is that is actually you're promoting abusive behavior within the mothers and the mothers, I think are trying their best. Mm-hmm. The families are going to be trying their best to take care of their babies, but that is bad advice. And I would actually steer clear because you, what you have is, and this is what they've had with some of these really restrictive programs is these babies all of a sudden end up getting, being failure to thrive. Yeah. You know, I've worked with a lot of those families. Small after they've tried a sleep training program at three or four months and they come back to me and mom has had to stop breastfeeding and she didn't want to stop breastfeeding, but her supply dropped so much and baby is failure to thrive. Yeah. Failure to thrive. And then, you know, in in some cases, then child protection gets involved. And really, I mean, this, as I said, you know, the AAP has even come out against some of these programs Mm -hmm. being so awful. So that is bad. That is under any circumstance, that one is bad. Mm -hmm. You know, and making an arbitrary decision like that is also pretty absurd, you know, because babies just need that. Now, when you start talking about older babies, that's more kind of, you know, like we're talking about, you know, 12, 18 months, you know, when it's more just kind of a comfort habit kind of thing, Mm -hmm. if moms are okay with that, then it's perfectly fine. But sometimes moms kind of need a little bit of a break from that. And that can actually be a time because, you know, they're eating other things, they're getting, you know, there's other stuff going on in their life and they're, you know, they're getting other sources of nutrition, but cutting off a six month old from their food, it's, Mm -hmm. it, it boggles my mind. It really does. I think it's just, I think that's such bad advice. And I think, I don't mean to cut you off, but what really frustrates me is that I have found that most parents, most mothers don't want to stop feeding their baby. They're not doing it because they're, some parents are, some parents are really exhausted and they really need to change. But many families simply just think that they're doing the wrong thing by being responsive to their babies and feeding their babies. And I think that is so outrageous that we have so many families that are, I, they literally just are coming to me for validation. Like, am I making the right choice by going into my baby's room and feeding them when they wake up? Like that to me that we've gotten there to that point is crazy to me. Yeah. 
And so I think, again, part of that is just like an education and kind of like, you know, they have a need. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of times sleep training programs take place around, say, eight, nine months. Well, your baby goes through a very large cognitive shift at that time. Yes. And they go through something called object permanence, where they can understand that if you're not there right in front of them, that you still exist. Mm -hmm. So then a lot of times you start seeing a lot of night waking around that age and they wake up and they're terrified because they think they've been abandoned. Yeah. You know, and so it's kind of like, that's a legitimate need, you know, and it's like to somehow think that you're going to train babies out of that. I just, I, I think it's honestly cruel. You know, and again, like I said, what we found in our study is a lot of times when that happened, that parents were actually bringing the babies into bed with them. And we found that through the first year, you know, but if you, if you're told it's wrong and it's going to harm your baby, if you do that, you know, you're going to be scared and you're going to think, oh, I have to do this, you know, but a lot of times it kind of even goes against your gut. You know, it's like, what's your gut telling you here? You know, wiring is telling you to do something, you know, and like people will tell you, and sometimes people even put kind of a theological bent on it, you know, there's, you know, you have to do it because it's, it's sin otherwise, you know, and you're teaching your baby that they're the center of the universe. Well, you know what, honestly, for a while, your baby needs to be the center of the universe, you know, because they have no other way to get what they need, you know, besides mine. I mean, that's their sole, you know, method of communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, there's, we, you talked about this a little bit, but how, when there is a mental health issue with a mother, usually the recommendation is to do some form of weaning. Um, but another recommendation that is very common is to sleep train. It's always, it's almost always blamed on sleep deprivation. Um, and sleep deprivation is definitely an issue, but it is not the only thing that causes depression and anxiety. There's so many factors, especially postpartum. Um, do you think that sleep training actually does does it protect a mother's mental health or does it help at all? Nothing, nothing. And, it, and I'm tech, I'm quoting this from the sleep training articles. It does absolutely nothing, but actually probably the article I'd recommend is by Hill and Douglas. And it came out in, I want to say 2013, I think, but it was a very good lit review. And they said found mm-hmm. no difference in, in rates wow. of postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. Um, but even like the his, the Hisok article that, you know, got all these worldwide headlines, um, you know, they found no difference in postpartum depression. So it's like, no, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. help. I think sometimes mothers might feel better because they feel like they're getting some attention for their problem. But you know, what I would be looking at is if you've got a really exhausted, you know, baby and you've got a really exhausted mom, it's like, okay, what else is going on? Can we kind right. of figure out, you know, like, you know, I remember talking to one mother one time they were staying, you know, and they, they tended that the family moved around a lot because they, you know, were involved in, you know, some of the renewable energy stuff. And so like every eight months or so they move. But when I saw them, they were at a, you know, like a residence, one of the residence hotels, you know, and she was breastfeeding, but she was exhausted. And it was kind of like, I said, okay, so, you know, tell me what's going on at night. Where's the baby. And, and she says, well, he's in the room, but he was clear across the room in this, you know, big kind of master bedroom. And so she, every time that he, you know, he cried, she was physically getting out of bed and going over and, you know, so again, mm-hmm. right there, that's a, that's kind of a simple behavioral thing you can kind of do to say okay can we bring the baby closer so you don't have to completely get out of bed you know she did she absolutely adamant about not having the baby in the bed but I said can we bring him closer so you can actually get him without having to physically get out of bed and honestly I think it's safer that way too you know I still remember kind of a horrifying story that a colleague of mine um, you know she's now retired but she said when she was in nursing school she remembers a time you know a situation where there was a mom that got up in the middle of the night you know, when got the baby out of the crib and tripped mm. over the dog. Okay. Could happen very easily. Middle of the night, yeah. tired and stuff. 
baby dropped, baby died. Oh. She said, so when people start talking to me about how bed sharing is not safe, she said, that's always the one I remember. You know, yeah. the thing that we're, we're, you know, recommending, again, some kind of dangerous behavior. So again, a lot of times looking at the situation, you know, um, I talked to one grandma one time, the, the, the mom was kind of like, she'd had some fairly significant trauma history, but she was in a situation where she, they were very worried about her mental health. And, you know, she had a baby who was late preterm. You know, she'd had a number of miscarriages up to this pregnancy, so already anxious, you know, mm-hmm. and so she was having some problems with anxiety. But babies who are late preterm are kind of notoriously poor sleepers. Yeah. But she didn't want to talk to anybody because she was afraid they were going to tell her to wean. And, you know, I told this grandma, I said, that's a realistic concern. I said, that's probably exactly what they're going to tell her. I said, so let's think about a couple of other things, you know, and this was a family that had some means. And so one of the things I recommended was that, you know, possibly a co-sleeper. She didn't want the baby in the bed. But, you know, this getting up was like exhausting her. And Mm -hmm. I said, bring the baby closer. If that's not one option, let's have the baby, you know, in a basket or something like that. We talked about that. But I said also, you know, babies who are late preterm, we know that they're they're poor sleepers. And the reason is because, you know, their brain hasn't finished developing. They look like full-term babies, but they're not. Mm -hmm. You know, so we're talking babies that are born, like, say, before 36 weeks. And so they're not really preterm. They're not really term. They're late preterm, you know, and so one of the things that happens is they tire out before they finish a full feed. Okay. So you might think, okay, what's that got to do with sleep? Well, think about this. If the baby is like doing this, suck, 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 sleep, suck, 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 sleep. And they're doing that all night. That is exhausting. Yeah. It's exhausting. You know? And so one of the things to do is we want to think about how can we get more calories into that baby? And this is when you talk about little breastfeeding hacks, you know, and there's this one, it's called the milkshake. You know, the mom kind of takes her breast and just gently shakes it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then as the baby gets on, they do breast compressions. And what that does is it releases more of the fatty milk into the milk mm-hmm. so that the baby is getting more calories per feed. Mm-hmm. So then can stretch it out a little bit, you know, yeah. so they're not waking up every 20 minutes, you know? So again, like I said, there's a lot of times individual situations that, you know, and I know, you know, this, cause you go in and talk to these families, you know, that we can kind of analyze it, you know, so it's not just, oh, they're breastfeeding and they're bed sharing, therefore they're exhausted. That's, you know, we need to stop that. It's kind of like, okay, how are they doing that? And what else is going on in this situation that is making them so tired? You know, maybe this, maybe the thing is she needs to get somebody in to kind of help during the day so she can go take a nap. Exactly. You know, and one of the things I recommend is like, if you've got, you know, the situation where, and you you have this sometimes where mothers are just hanging on by a thread. Mm-hmm. You know, what the research literature suggests is, you know, in that situation, if she can get a four hour stretch, it's going to make all the difference. Yeah. You know, and they found the difference between the depressed and the non-depressed is at least one four hour stretch. And that's going to be breastfeeding friendly. She's going to be full when she wakes up, but it's going to, it's not going to tank her supply, you know, four hour stretch. And then after that, you know, just feed normally. But then if she can also get a nap during the day, you know, mm-hmm. so again, when you start rallying the social support, right. you know, to make that happen. And remembering too, that this is not going to last forever. You know, that yeah. this is temporary, but a lot of times if there's really well, you know, and you get to that point where you're just hanging on by a thread, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. And what the other thing I think you need in that situation is a caregiver who is awake, because if the caregiver is also asleep, the mom's going to hear that baby first. And so it doesn't really help. Right. <laughs> so yeah. you know, what I actually kind of suggested just from a practical standpoint is moving your bedtime up to say eight o'clock. So you can go eight to midnight mm-hmm. sleep, you know, and then whoever's watching may have to get up and go to work in the morning, but that's still doable. 
Yeah, totally. I actually did that with my son who woke for the first like four or five months. He woke every like 30 to 45 minutes. Um, this was the one that would only sleep on my chest or when I was standing up right. rocking him. So what we would do is my husband had a flexible work schedule. So I would go get my husband at like maybe four, four 30 mm. in the morning, pass the baby off to him. And I would go sleep until he would go to work a little later. So I would go sleep until like eight, eight 30. Sometimes right. he would bring the baby into me to feed. Sometimes I would, if I could express a little bit, he would give mm. the baby. Um, but that worked for me. I mean, that kept me like I survived. I was not thriving at that time, but it was a few months. He had medical issues. You know, we were working through it. Sleep training would not have helped either of us. No, um, no. and it got better and now did it's so much reflux? better. Did he, have he had reflux? reflux? He had yeah. food sensitivities and he yeah. had, he does mouth breathing, having a hard time breathing. He just had a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Um, no, training would have been horrible, you know, and yeah. the other thing I want to kind of tell you about is there was a study by my friend, Wendy Middlemas down in New Zealand, and they did, there was a residential program where you could bring your baby and they would sleep train him for you. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they'd have the mom and the baby check in and they, what they found is by the end of the program, the babies were still highly stressed. They were no longer crying, but they were still excreting a lot of cortisol, which is stress hormone yeah. and anything, anytime you have a lot of, you know, of high levels of cortisol, that's not a good thing. That's not even a good thing on adults, let alone right. a baby with a very vulnerable, malleable brain. So this is again, one of the reasons why I'm, I'm not a fan of this. It's like, whatever is going to raise those cortisol levels in the baby, I don't think is actually something that we should encourage. You right. know, and anyway, what she found is like I said, by three days they were crying, but by five days they were no longer crying, but they were still stressed. So think about these poor little mute babies, mm -hmm. you know, and they considered it a success, but you know, at what cost? Right. At what cost is always the question. Um, and the other thing I think about when we're talking about sleep training and mental health is all of the parents who, who their own mental health suffers right. because of sleep training, because they don't want to sleep train or because the experience right. feels traumatic to them. Um, you know, not all babies, some babies might just cry for five minutes and then they might be, you know, quote unquote sleep trained, but some babies, a lot of babies are going to cry a lot longer or they're going to yeah. scream or they're going to throw up. They're going to, you know, yeah. there's lots of terrible things that can happen. Um, and so that can be traumatizing for definitely for the parents that are sleep training. And it can also potentially be traumatizing for that baby. Um, and it's honestly, that kind of advice is abusive. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I've, I've talked to so many families who have told me it wasn't the sleep deprivation that caused the bulk of their depression or anxiety. It was the pressure to sleep train. It was the actual sleep training. It was the feeling that there was something wrong with their baby and that they had to fix it. That, and for me, that is absolutely what caused my postpartum anxiety with my first child. The feeling that Every time I tried to put my daughter to sleep because I had to support her to sleep, she wouldn't sleep independently. There was something wrong with her. There was something wrong with my parenting and I was failing as a mother. And that right. is what caused me to be anxious and depressed for six sure. months of her life. Yeah. Um, and so we have to look at that part of it too. You know, of it's, course. there's absolutely like some parents may not have that, those traumatic experiences when sleep training, some parents, it might not be make them feel anxious or depressed when they sleep train. But for a lot of families it is. And so giving this, yeah. this blanket advice to mothers that are struggling is horrible. It is. I, I think it's absolutely horrible. I think it's terrible advice. And it's like um, somebody actually posted this on Facebook. It was a, they took a screenshot of a book they'd seen in the bookstore and it was telling you, Oh yeah, sometimes they might throw up. So just have a set of blankets there 
so that you can, you know, wipe your clean sheet so you can swap it out and put a clean sheet under there. Don't pick up the baby. And I thought that's disgusting. That's abuse. I mean, straight it, out, that is abuse. I know not all is. sleep training is like that. I know not all parents no. who sleep train and do not that. All of it is this, you know, and I'm going to say, you know, if you feel like you need to do it, you know, do the ones where it's a very limited amount of time and don't do it for months on end, you know, because right. I think a lot of it is, you know, sort of quantity and i think actually the other thing that's kind of a big issue because you talk about you know not wanting to make family feel bad and i don't absolutely uh, but i want to kind of keep in mind what's the bigger goal here right you know people think oh you know breastfeeding that's the goal it's like no breastfeeding is actually a goal but it's just it's really in terms of early parenting stuff not the goal the goal is a secure attachment Mm -hmm. and the bedrock of a secure attachment is responsive care yes you know, and actually the last article that Bowlby and Ainsworth wrote together. Now, Bowlby is the one who kind of first, you know, the, the, he's the British psychiatrist who kind of really put the attachment stuff on the map. Mm-hmm. Ainsworth was his American counterpart. Last article that they wrote together was in 91. It was before they both passed away. Mm-hmm. And they said there were a couple of things that were essential to establish secure attachment. Secure attachment was maternal or caregiver proximity and responsive care. And it's kind of like, sleep training is the opposite of responsive care, right? You know, it's based on that old model of behaviorism and behaviorism was, a, is a failed parenting practice. Yes. You know, um, Marriott Hartley, I believe is actually the granddaughter of J.D. Watson and wrote a book about this and talked about all that, you know, and this is, he's the one giving all this crap parent advice, you know, and he raised his own kids this way. And she talked about all the depression and the suicide and the mm-hmm. substance abuse and the, you know, I mean, seriously, Look at the results of this, these parenting practices and then really ask yourself, is this the direction I want to go? Right. Because that's where it started. That is where this, this yeah. idea that you could shape behavior by rewards and punishments. And I learned this in grad school too. One of my professors said, well, if you respond to a baby when they cry, you know, that you're going to be, you're going to make them more likely to cry. And it's actually the opposite is true. The opposite is true. That babies who are responded to actually cried less. Mm-hmm. You know, and in some cultures, they don't cry at all because people are always there responding to them, you know, and so it's just, it's terrible advice. It's terrible advice. Yeah. And my question is always, you know, it doesn't mean that if you do sleep train, um, that your baby isn't going to be securely attached to you. We don't, we don't know because all babies are going to be affected differently. All parents are going to be affected differently. Attachment depends on so many things, but if we know what is needed to facilitate secure attachment, why would we choose to do the opposite of that? And I think, again, a lot of it really kind of depends on, you know, how severe it is, how much you did, how long you did it. Right. You know, so I, yes, I think so. attachment is robust, but I, you know, you're absolutely right. Why would you tell somebody to do something that's the opposite and the opposite of what their heart is telling them? Right. You know, and I think one of the, you know, what the, one of the best ways we can support parents is by just sitting there saying, look, you know, we're going to stand by you on this. This is actually the way that our bodies are designed, that our babies are designed you know, to, to function in this way. And this increases their survival. It protects your mental health. You know, it helps everybody get, you know, through a difficult time. It helps them get more sleep. Even if you feel tired, you're still getting more sleep. It may not seem like it actually are. Um, And, you know, and mothers a lot of times on our study, you know, even though there was a clear difference when we asked them, do you think breastfeeding helps you from sleep, keeps you from sleep or makes no difference? They were evenly split between those three answers. They didn't necessarily feel like they were. Everybody's tired during that time, but you could very clearly see that the ones that were either supplementing or exclusive formula feeding were more tired. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and it's kind of like, regardless of, the, of where the baby slept, but you know, right. the, the ones that got the least amount of sleep, not surprisingly, were the ones who were not exclusive by breastfeeding and um, baby slept in a separate place. They got the least amount of sleep. Yeah. You know, so, so interesting. Yeah. This idea that somehow we can sort of train the babies. I mean, babies may eventually submit to this, like those non-crying babies in Wendy's study. Right. You know, but at what cost? At what cost? Yeah. And some babies won't. Some babies you can't, you can't yeah, no, because no. some babies are very like high needs. Those were my kids. My kids, oh, yeah. if if I had allowed oh, them yeah. to, they would scream all night long until I responded yeah. to if them. They've got if they've got that kind of more sensitive temperament, absolutely. They, yeah. they you know, and I think that they're actually showing a real need that they need yeah. that they need that contact. They need to kind of be like, you know, near somebody. Otherwise they will scream. They'll scream yeah. until they pass out. And they need yeah. to be co-regulated with. They can't self-regulate, which is a whole nother conversation that it I is. talk about a lot. But I could talk to you for hours, but I do not want to keep you. Um, Kathy, thank you so much for sharing just your wealth of knowledge and wisdom with us. Can you tell people that are listening where they can find you and your resources? Um, yeah. If you want to go to, um, uh, we put up a, like a, a guiding page or, a, you know, an entry page called KKT now. Um, and so that will actually take you.com that will actually take you to my, my page. And we've got a lot of our sleep articles on that. Or you can also go to my publishing company, which is perclarispress.com, you know, which is P-R-A-E-C-L-A-R-U-S press.com. And I'll yeah. link that. I apologize, in the show I apologize for the name. Um, <laughs> I named it before I, you know, they said in small businesses, you should never have a name of a company people can't spell or pronounce. <laughs> But I liked the word. It means excellent, you know, and that's oh, I love what we that. to do. And so we actually tried to have some handouts and stuff, but I've got handouts and stuff, uh, sleep handouts and stuff on my, um, you know, and, and some of the research articles that we did, if you want to kind of take a look. Um, but yeah, I, I would say probably the biggest thing to know is that, you know, it's normal for babies to wake at night and yeah. it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. You're, yeah. you're doing exactly what you need to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Um, and I will link those. I will add those links to the show notes so that people can, um, just copy and paste or click right on them. Um, and I think you gave us a coupon for people that are listening, right? So coupon code, I think for anything on your, your publishing website, um, and the code is sleep on it with for 20% (laughs) off capital, capital, all capitals, um, sleep on it. And I'll put that in the show notes as well for 20% off. So thank you so much okay. for that. Okay. And we've got a, we've got a book you might find interesting. I mean, it is a little more researchy, but it's called the science of mother infant sleep. Um, and you know, like one of the articles that's in there, or you can just Google this too, cause it's online for free. It's called, um, the dangers of crying out by uh, Darsha Navarez. And mm-hmm. she's actually at the Notre Dame too. She's in the psychology department, but she wrote that for the psychology today post. And she gets a lot of she gets a lot of pushback on that, as you can imagine. Yeah. But if you want to really actually go through and see the reasons why, you know, she she puts it in some pretty um, pretty strong language about mm. you know why this is actually problematic. But in terms of mental health, no, it, you know, we've got good literature reviews on this, and we've got good studies on this, and it's just like nope, doesn't help at all. Yeah. It's so important to know, um, especially when most, a lot of healthcare providers are telling mothers the exact opposite. So moms have to know, parents have to know this um, and be empowered with that information. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me. It was amazing. I've learned so much from you. Like I said, I could talk to you probably for hours, um, but (laughs) thank you for being here. Oh, you're very welcome. And actually, um, I've got a new book coming out in the next summer called Breastfeeding Doesn't Doesn't Need to Suck. Oh, nice. And so I've got a whole section in there on sleep. 
Oh, that's so, awesome. A section on bed sharing, a whole section on kind of like normal sleep patterns and sleep and mental health. And so, yeah, it, you know, it's a, keep an eye out for that. But if you want, join yeah. our mailing list and we'll be uh, releasing some bits from that as, as you know, we're kind of waiting impatiently, but everything's taking longer right now with all the mm -hmm. supply chain shortages. Yeah. Oh, well, I will definitely be on the lookout for that. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Cool. Thank you well, so much, well, Kathy. Oh, you're very welcome. Listen, thank you. And thanks for doing what you're doing with uh, educating people about this. I think it's really important. Yeah, of course. So this will be the last episode of season two. We've talked about some amazing topics, have, have had some amazing guests on here this season and last season. So if you missed those episodes, go back. There are over 30 episodes for you to listen to from season one and season two. It's been an amazing year. I will be back for season three in the new year. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one -one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor Kulik. I hope you'll join me next time.